The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists. Tether, get smart, get tethered. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator, here with my colleague, official agitator friend, and Yoda, most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. I am interested in this conversation today because Lawrence Berkeley Labs, who we're going to be speaking with today, I've been quoting stuff off their website in my presentations for the last 10 years. So I've been hideously and unashamedly spouting their stuff. And it's all good stuff, right? So this is going to be an interesting conversation for me. (laughs) Yeah, so today's guest worked his way into a project manager position at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. And when we get into the presentation, we'll ask for a little bit of history about the lab because a lot of our listeners don't know about the lab, and we should probably talk about the history of it. It's got a neat story behind it. You also served as an executive director for the California Commissioning Collaborative, technical manager at Clear Results and the Portland Energy Conservation Incorporated. And he was also director of engineering at Energy Sys. Welcome to the show, Mr. Elliot Crow. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you're most welcome. So, uh, Elliot, you earned a uh, Bachelor's of uh, Industrial Design from the University of Plymouth, then went under a Master's Diploma in Design Technology and Project Management through uh, Shelfield Hellman University. By the way, I love your educational path, that industrial design is a useful education in no matter what field you're in. So why don't you share with us why you took that route and how you used your education in your career path, because it's pretty interesting. Well... Yeah, thanks, Robert. Yeah, I, I you know, grew up in England, and the industrial design field was you know, very interesting to me. I studied that at undergrad. I had wild dreams and fantasies of being one of these superstar industrial designers, and turned out I wasn't that good. <laughs> you know, I was okay, you know, but, but I, I, I kind of aimed for the stars, and you know, what is it? You aim for the moon and end up in the stars, something like that. But you know, I, I ended up getting more into design engineering and project management. And then over the course of several jobs in the UK and, and then eventually move into the States, I kind of transitioned more from the engineering side into the actual project management side. And then, uh, you know, I kind of fell into energy efficiency in 2006 when I saw the job at Portland Energy Conservation, Inc. advertised on Craigslist. I thought, well, that seems like something <laughs> worthwhile to do. You know, it was... The job recruiter... Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I finished up a job that was industrial manufacturing and thought, well, I want to do something more worthwhile and energy efficiency. Oh, that sounds good. So I joined PECI and I just drank the commissioning Kool-Aid, as it were. They were huge on commissioning way back in its origins, back in the the 80s. They had a lot of really well-known people there in the commissioning industry. They, They ran the National Conference on Building Commissioning. They were kind of seeding the Building Commissioning Association. They were just in it. And yeah. I managed to get a program manager position there. So I was I spent 10 years at PECI managing utility retro-commissioning programs, some, some government-funded technical research, the California Commissioning Collaborative, the conference, and all these things I was kind of just getting mixed up in. 
and just absolutely loved it. You know, I don't have the qualifications to go into buildings and, and really do commissioning, but you know, I learned about the process and the people and all the angles, started to get into the, the more analytics end of things during that role. And then that was kind of my entry point then to go into the Berkeley lab, which is uh, very much in the, the sort of analytics realm. I've uh, been there for four years now as a, as a program manager. So that's kind of my potted history there. I like, do you know, so I love the fact that you got your job off Chrysler. So it's just awesome. Yeah, because eventually I, I was recruited in by so-and-so. And yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I went off Chrysler, found my job, and it's been awesome ever since. There's a, there's yeah. a life lesson there, man, already. Absolutely. <laughs> it was a good time, too, because in Portland at that time, so many energy efficiency businesses were really exploding. And PECI was, was one company growing yeah. so fast that... They didn't really have the expectation they were going to find people who had all the energy efficiency experience. They just wanted people that were smart, technical, good fit, you know, and I didn't have any background in energy efficiency, but, you know, I fit, I guess. Nice. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, when we look back at a lot of our guests that have made an impact in the world in whatever field they've been in, coming out of school with the aspirations of being the superstar, as you, as you stated, Realized very quickly that, yeah, <laughs> it's not what I mean. But they switched. It was recognizing early on in their careers that they needed to make a move rather than getting stuck and hating their lives and hating their jobs because they, you know, they get in a rut. And these individuals like yourself just said, yeah, you know what? This, I thought of, this was for me, but it's not. And I'm going to make a move. So good on you. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that separates the winners in the end is the ability to not get trapped by the sunk cost fallacy, right? I've done industrial design, and if I don't become an industrial designer, I've wasted everything. No, you can pivot sideways and use them skills somewhere else, right? For a long time, I don't think I, I really recognized how much of those skills I was using, just the problem solving. You know, I don't yeah. end up with a product at the end of things these days. You know, nothing you can actually hold in your hands, but it's the same process. You think up a problem, Think of different ways to solve it, test them out, yeah. come to what works. You know. Yeah. And I keep using IDEO. You're probably familiar with IDEO. I mean, really world-famous industrial design house. I keep using them because they're a great example. But, you know, we need an IDEO in the world of uh, property development and architecture where you bring, you know, multiple, multiple personalities and skill sets to the table. Yeah. And those people may never actually ever step into the building, but... You know, and the stories, of course, that come out of IDEO, especially the ones with Steve Jobs and developing the mouse. And, you know, you just bring everybody from every walk of life that wants to play in yep. the sandbox, whether it's the bus driver, the baker, the engineer, the physician, you all come together at a table and you design the product. And what comes out of it is something that's useful for society, right? In many ways, that building behind you, the Flex Lab, there's a lot of research work coming out of that lab. Are you part of it? Like, do you actually get to play in the lab at all? Or No, I don't. You know, I'm part of the Building Technology and Urban Systems Division within the lab, and the Flex Lab is part of that. But mm. it's, it's not something I've worked on hands-on. But, it, you know, the, the lab is super proud of this. I mean, this building, this part of it right here, you can kind of see the edge of it. I mean, the whole building rotates okay, yeah. so that if you want to test out glazing with different aspects and, and orientations, then you can test it in one position, then spin it around, test it in another. It's, it's super advanced, configurable. And I know the lab as a whole has been having a lot of fun testing it out and looking for partners who want to 
to use it. It's really cool. When we, and I remember it was like probably now four or five years ago, we were at one of our ASHRAE committee meetings, uh, TC 6.5, which is the Radiant Committee. The design team came to present us the project because they were looking for input on the design. This is an interesting story. Adam and I actually met at a course and I was talking about uh, Robert Pettijohn's book, uh, Total Hydronic Balancing. We're talking about valve authority. And uh, Adam, you know, well, you were the only person in the room that even recognized the term. And as it's so, anyways, your representatives, your colleagues from uh, Lawrence Berkeley were in our room. And as soon as they started talking valve authority, I thought, okay, these guys know what they're doing. Yeah. They know what they're doing. And because not very many engineers do. And when they started to talk about the features of the building, and it has radiant in it, and I know you guys have been part of the large project that uh, the Center for the Built Environment has been playing with in terms of radiant research work, because they've used your lab, I think, for some stuff. So for our international listeners, and particularly people from the UK, in my mind, Lawrence Berkeley Lab is very similar to BISRIA in the UK, the, the Building Services Information Research Association. I can't remember the full name. but So just for the benefit of our listeners, could you just give a quick overview of what Lawrence Berkeley does? I forget the exact number. There's over a dozen national labs across the U.S., and they are predominantly doing federally funded work. So for us, it's at least 75%. We, we have to have federal funded work. We're actually quite a bit higher than that. But essentially, there are all these federal labs. They each have different mixes of specialties. So in the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in, in Berkeley, we have, gosh, I don't know if it's 5,000 people working there, but it's wow. in the many thousands and we have computer science and biotechnology. There was just an announcement today that one of the faculty who works at the lab and also UC Berkeley was one of the co-winners of that Nobel Prize that got announced today. As a whole, there's all this work happening across many so-called divisions and technology areas. So then there's the energy technology area, which looks at you know policy and generation and all kinds of things. Then within that, there's the Building Technology and Urban Systems Division, which is what I'm a part of. Within our group, we look at building analytics is the team I'm a part of. We have simulation groups. We have groups looking at demand response. Grid-enabled efficient buildings is a, a big deal right now and load flexibility. We're looking at indoor air quality and building health issues around that. We also are looking at resilience. These are sort of current focus areas. So we, we have all these scientists doing research. There's kind of a, a little bit of ebb and flow in the type of research. We talk about technology readiness level, TRL. And at any given time, the government might be more interested in high TRL research, which is the kind of things where it's kind of close to market, but just needs a bit of an extra push. Maybe it needs field demonstrations of technology. So owners are more you know, interested in taking that on. At the other end of the technology readiness level is more things that more in the nitty gritty of nearer to pure science, answering theoretical questions that may answer questions, you know, and become products in 10 years time, let's say. The trends can change over time, whether they're more interested in one end or the other. Within the building technology and urban systems division, we don't tend toward pure research, but we kind of do demonstrations. We do sort of, let's take an example. So for fault detection and diagnostics technologies, we might work on refining algorithms and applying machine learning or AI, let's say, to those algorithms, which may not necessarily drop straight into a product 
once we finish our project, but it, it kind of pushes the industry along, you know, on a, on a longer term basis. That's interesting. In property development and construction, R&D is a very underrated, underreported, underfunded thing, right? And you're essentially an R&D for the built environment, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Outsourced. <laughs> To some degree. We make our papers and, and research free. We, we love to collaborate with industry wherever we can to yeah. to make those connections and see that our work is relevant. So we're asking the right questions. And also that when we're done, we can actually get the word out. Excellent. I think it was Lawrence Berkeley that there was a technology. It was a radiant cooling panel. So it was discharging during the daytime to atmosphere and cooling fluid. About, so rather than being an absorber for heating up fluid for conditioning buildings, it was actually taking the heat from the building during the daytime and discharging it to atmosphere. I'm pretty sure it was your guys' lab that did the, did a paper on that, and it was fascinating technology. I don't think it's commercially ready yet, but if you can think about the applications of that, especially if you could reverse it, you know, so during the day, well, I guess you couldn't really reverse it, it's a cooling system, but... It's got potential. And, you know, yeah. in a high-performance building, which you guys do a lot of research work on high-performance buildings, if you can get the loads down and use large surface area heat exchangers, a few degrees of cooling during the daytime from a collector, or not, it's not a collector at that point, it's a, I guess, a discharge, whatever which you would call it, an emitter, that's all you need, you know? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not familiar with that personally. There's so much that happens in the group. That yeah. I'm like, oh, my God. I hope, yeah. hope I asked about specific projects that I look foolish for not knowing about. But. Well, no, you shouldn't. And you, and you shouldn't because both Adam and I recognize that, you know, what comes out of the labs is, I mean, it's huge. The library is amazing. The yeah. inventory of documents and projects. So, But I'm like Adam. I have been following the lab for a good part of my career, you know, because what comes out of there has been incredibly useful for practitioners. Yeah. As a lecturer for ASHRAE, being able to stand in front of you know a group of engineers and architects and, and advise them about what the lab is learning and information that they could use in upcoming buildings, you know, and that of course that has a huge impact on society. So mm-hmm. it's a fantastic part of working at the lab too, and I, I found this to a certain degree at PECI as well. That when you go out and meet people and talk to people, you realize you're kind of benefiting from the reputation that you weren't necessarily part of creating, you know, people, people really uh, respect the work of the lab and are interested to hear from us and share with us. And I feel very fortunate that I can do that. Yeah, standing on the shoulders of others, but that's yeah. where progress yeah. comes from because all progress is incremental innovation, mostly, right? Radical innovation is unusual, right? Yeah. I can tell you, I shamelessly stand next to that logo and, and repeat some of the things that come out of that yeah. lab. And claim the glory personally. So I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I used to start some of my commissioning presentations if I was speaking at conferences and that. With, I put up this, this old slide. I haven't used it for a long time now, but it put a slide up and it was some research back in 2000 by Lawrence Berkeley Labs about all the defects and problems found in buildings. Because it was you guys asking the questions, I think people were very forthcoming. And it was just this eight bullet list of like, so much of it is design issues. So much of it is this. Like 50% yeah. of all problems are missing equipment. So let's be clear on that. That is a job that's been designed, installed, <laughs> but you've been paid to go away, and someone's gone, hang on, where's the compressor? <laughs> <laughs> Balancing <laughs> valves. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 so, it's so nice that those problems don't happen anymore, though, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> the last bullet on that thing was, and the cost to the built environment, if you aggregate all the developed space in America, the cost to the built environment was $3 a square foot. Now, in the US, that is a massive, massive number. That was the cost of not commissioning properly and handing your building over working properly. It was mm-hmm. estimated back in 2000 at $3 a square foot. Let's say that was out 50%. Let's call it $1.50 a square foot. That is still a gargantuan number. Yeah. <laughs> you all know this probably better than me, but you know the structural reasons for why that happens, you know, they're, they're not completely gone away. You know, who, no. who pays the first cost and what do they yeah. pay it based on and who gets to pay that $3 penalty? Is it the people that are building it or... You know, it's uh, it's the end you know, those, user. Those things so, haven't gone away yet. My theory on the importance of Lawrence Berkeley Lab, apart from his reputation, is we have to admit that there's a lot of commissioning processes going, and then post occupancy will do this and this. That's a fantasy, because the way contracts are built is you build that building, you get paid, and you run as fast as you can in the opposite direction once you put your money. Right? That's just how it works, and all of that is based on first cost decision making. So the importance of Lawrence Berkeley is if you can come up with a technology that is cost-effective and then can be incorporated in that's relatively passive or low-maintenance, that is actually a massive impact on the life cycle of that building. Right? My favorite example that is solar wall. So I worked on a project in, in Canada which had the largest installation of solar wall, and on a minus 20 day, it was giving a 20-degree C lift in outside air temperature. Wow. Zero maintenance, zero moving parts. What's not to like about that unless you're the yeah. union dude on the FM team? So yeah, this is why yeah. Lawrence Berkeley Lab is important. So I'm saying that because one of the things I want to talk to you about today is the new publication that's come out, Energy and Buildings, which I think was a partnership with yourselves and the Building Commission Association in the US. So I want to talk about that because I think the stats I, I used to quote in my presentations about the defects in buildings came from an earlier iteration of that study. So do you want to tell us about this new, new publication? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. The original publication was 2004, and this was a, effectively a cost-benefit meta-study for commissioning, which touched on the energy savings, the non-energy benefits, some of what you described in terms of characterizing the types of defects, etc. Yeah. Five years later, that, that was expanded, and that's probably the, the most well-known version of the report in 2009, led by Evan Mills. That was about 600 projects worth of data. I forget if it's 600 projects or 600 buildings, but, but you know, a fairly sizable database of commissioning projects going over a couple of decades. It's been many, many times cited in terms of the energy benefits, the, the non-energy benefits. We saw that the time was passing and it got to 2017, 2018. I forget if the original suggestion came from BCA or from the, the Berkeley Lab side, but we ended up in conversation about, well, let's let's see what the numbers look like now, 10 years on. And that was not just thinking about, you know, the base, let's call it basic commissioning, you know, have those yeah. metrics gone up or down, but also thinking about some of the more emerging practices. You know, if we went out and got data now, would we see more on the monitoring-based commissioning, the analytics, envelope commissioning, would we see things expanding out of HVAC and more into lighting and other systems, those kind of things. So, so we kind of set off to gather more data. So the Building Commissioning Association was collecting data from their own members on projects, 
We reached out to utilities, notably ComEd and BC Hydro up in Canada, where very strong supporters. We also got support in California from their monitoring-based commissioning partnership program. That saw the, the database increase to almost 1,500 buildings where commissioning had happened, whether it's new construction or existing building. And that gave us a chance to see two ways we looked at that. One was comparing what we collected in 2018 to what we saw in 2009. The other was if we combine everything into to one single database, what, what are the, the high-level numbers there? So the work was done in 2018 that always takes a while to get papers published. So that just, just came out now. And so, yeah, it, it, it was really exciting. You know, the, the 2009 report, you know, I, I was on the other side, you know, at PECI, we, we provided some data for that. We used that in many presentations, just like you. We had all those yeah. slides that reported the stats. So it was great to be a part of updating that study. And it was interesting that the stories that came out in terms of costs and, and savings for existing building commissioning, if you just looked at a single number of the median percent savings, it was a lower number than was reported in 2009. It was, it nice. was around about 6.5% whole building savings. And so we, we kind of dug in to try and find out, you know, what could we find out in the sample composition? Is there anything about the characteristics of the projects that's changed? And I think that the biggest factor we saw was that whereas in 2009, the data that was collected there was, was a real mix of, let's call it commissioning on the open market versus utility-sponsored projects versus monitoring-based commissioning projects back then. I think back then things were very much dominated by this kind of boutique-style superhero commissioning projects that, that were gold-plated, high-quality, and it was really good quality stuff. And I'm not suggesting what happens now isn't good quality, but I think that as things have scaled, you find the economies of scale. And it doesn't yes. mean necessarily you're able to get 60% every time, but you've got something really cost-effective. And the utility programs particularly were just about what 25% of the 2009 data set, they were about 80% of the more recent data set. And it just seems to be the case that utility projects don't reap as much savings. They do it very cost-effectively. You know, they have yeah. a very streamlined process. They also, I know firsthand, have a lot of paperwork and scrutiny on savings calculations and all these things. So I think, you know, in that respect, to be able to get 5 or 6% whole building savings with a one to two-year payback at scale is really good. Um, but you just have to be able to get over the fact that, you know, as a median for the whole study, 6% savings sounds like it's a lot less than, than 2009. A two-year payback, if it's straight on payback, that's good in anyone's book, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And the, the costs were, were really reasonable. They can get in and out, consistent process. I think it's, it's uh, certainly a success story on the utilities there. I do have a theory about the utility side of things. You were saying, you know, the returns weren't quite as high, but, you know, there's a lot of scrutiny on paper. I think with the utility side is, and this is one of my sort of issues with it, commissioning for utilities is I'm changing the lights, I'm doing this. So, you know, the calculations can be robust in terms of the predictive value of the calculation is quite high, right? But when you get into a building, and this is the systems approach to commissioning that I'm a big fan of rather than the equipment approach, so I would characterize that utilities are more equipment-based approach, whereas real commission is about systems. So when you get into the systems level, when you talk about the AV system and the building's the system, then the predictive value of the calculations is hard. 
because you're dealing with multiple moving parts. I've yet to meet a VAV system that's two years old that's actually working properly ever in 39 years, right? On paper and in the energy model, they are awesome. In reality, not so much. You know, I got fired as a retro commissioning guy because we came in and we were, our thing was to like lower the energy bill and we found all the outside air dampers were fully shut. <laughs> so we opened them and got them working properly. Their energy bill went up and out the door went Adam and his team. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. That's a tough one. Just the slings and arrows of our business. So utilities being in the commissioning business is a little bit difficult. It's a red herring. I find it, I don't know, a bit unpure. If you like. What I mean by that is, shouldn't really be in the commissioning business. The commissioning business is about systems. One of the things, the differences between, say, a UK approach and a North American approach is the UK approach is very systems-based. There's a lot more hydronic systems. Cost of energy is higher. Cost of water is higher. So there's a lot more thought, for want of a better word, and completeness in the design of buildings. And the supply chain and construction chain is set up for that. In North America, Canada and America, it's an equipment-based approach. Pretty much everything is, oh, if we're cost first cost, let's get that HU, that rooftop unit in, and we're done, right? So, you know, nine out of 10 buildings are a rooftop unit, bit of gas, boom, walk away. And until you can move away from that and get into radiant systems, hydronic systems, I think North America's hitting the limit where it can be affect a change without a change, a cultural change in engineering. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So a more well, radiant-based. Well, we're certainly seeing the effects of our design-build culture for lowest first cost now that we have to deal with the pandemic. You know, and the inabilities of HVAC systems to handle some of the health demands or yeah. demands for not improving people's health, but improving the health of the environment. And not only in terms of HVAC systems, but light, it all comes together under the, you know, the umbrella of indoor environmental quality. So lighting is there, sound, everything else. Both Adam and I are very strong believers of separating ventilation systems from thermal comfort systems. My entire practice, 35 years, we had independent systems. That's the way I was taught. And when I look today back at those projects during this pandemic, you know, I'm grateful because our clients have ventilation systems that are dedicated purely for maintaining the quality of the air and it doesn't conflict with the thermal comfort system. So they can operate them independently or they can operate them together depending on the requirements of the load. And there's a big bonus for that in the and Europe, as Adam as he pointed out, there's it's a standard system over there. Yeah. This begs the question, are Lawrence Berkeley looking at ventilation rates given what's going on in the world with the pandemic? Are they doing any research on ventilation rates and effective ventilation rates for health and safety, I guess, is what we're talking about here, right? Yes, we are. It's not something I'm directly involved in, so I'll be, yeah. be mindful of how much I say about it. But yeah, we, we have things around both on residential and commercial as well, yeah. like indoor air quality and ventilation. We're starting to kind of plug that into some of the COVID-related questions. I won't say too much, but yeah, definitely it's, it's something that's, that's interesting to us. You know, the extent, it's, it's interesting what you say about the, the radiant and systems and separating the ventilation and the, the conditioning piece, that we often have to be careful with research in terms of, you know, how much effort are we putting into making what's there operate more efficiently? Because yes. we all know how much potential there is for doing that versus trying to push the market forward to adopt more of these technologies that 
I don't think you'd even call them cutting edge anymore, right? It's like no. these things are well established. They're just not well yeah. adopted. If it which, was good enough for the Romans, then it's good enough for me. <laughs> you know, to some degree, these kind of issues, we have to stop and think, well, is, is this a problem that research solves? Or is this a structural industry problem that someone else really is better placed to solve that? And so I'm not, I'm not suggesting I've, I've got a position on that, but that's the sort of approach that ends up with us often... Yeah trying to make the existing paradigm more efficient, even though we ac- mm. accept that ripping everything out and replacing it is ultimately the, the more uh, ideal way to do things. Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for you, Rob, because there's a fine line between being an August Research Association and then being a lobbyist, right? There is a really fine oh, line yeah. there. Yeah. But I think the real power of someone like Lawrence Berkeley is if you can show through your research that something is just undeniably great, awesome, tremendous, super, you know, then it's on the industry to like get to the point where they can't ignore it, right? Because, you know, yeah. really the industry is driven by money in first cost. So unless there is a change in building code or a directive, then the next best thing is something that is so just undeniably correct and the right thing to do, right? That's the only other way it happens. I think it's driven mostly in Europe and UK by the fact that energy costs are higher and the building regulations are a lot more robust, let's say, robust, rather than dog shit like they are in North America. Excuse me. <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm the lunatic, by the way. Robert's a sensible one. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because one thing I've been really fascinated by in, in my time at the lab here, so uh, back in 2006 when I joined PECI, I, the reason I was hired was they had to grow because they were launching utility retrocommissioning programs. They had three big programs they were launching in California. It was kind of the, the first time that programs of that scale had been attempted. And oh boy, it was hard. And just without getting too much in the weeds, Adam, you kind of alluded to it that yeah. fitting retrocommissioning within the typical utility program paradigm, it's an odd fit. You know, I'd like to think we did a fairly good job of dealing mm. with that and the data from the commissioning study that's just published suggests that other utilities have, have really extended that and, and done a good job with it. But it did feel a lot like every day you had to, you know, it was like one hand was, was throwing money at owners to do something to operate yeah. their buildings better and the other hand was like trying to punch them into submission to, to, to actually do it. And you were given the money and free technical consulting and all these things. And you'd end up feeling like you, you got good results and you would just cross your fingers and hope that some of them might stay a year later. You know, it was hard and it was uphill. And I, I believe that it was good in the end and it got good results and real savings. But that was kind of my experience of that. And since being at the lab, one of the, the programs that was launched at a similar time to when I started, I, I wasn't deeply involved, but had some involvement all along, was the Smart Energy Analytics Campaign. Is that yeah. something you've heard of? I'm a big fan of it, and I've heard different variations of it, but I've not heard that actual word okay. combination. <laughs> the campaign actually just wrapped up, and we're, we're just about to go big with some media splash of how that all ended up. But you know, through that campaign, we connected with organizations that are using analytics, so fault detection diagnostics tools, energy information systems, some cases of automated system optimization. And it was an opportunity for us to provide some technical assistance to them. 
for us to learn about their kind of typical practices and some of the best practices that are working for them. We gathered data from them so we could actually document the impacts, you know, energy impacts, non-energy impacts, what yeah. they're doing with analytics, all of these things. So we're just kind of publishing the final results of all that right now. But something that I have found so encouraging is that from my old paradigm of being so hard and throwing money at owners to optimize their buildings, to now see what organizations are doing without needing to be bullied into it yeah. with the analytics and, and just you know, getting to the basics, getting control of their data, then starting to see fairly quick savings in the way you might with a retro commissioning project, then maintaining them. And some organizations who've perhaps been doing it five, six, seven, 10 years are starting to innovate and coming up with new ways that really fit their own unique circumstances or pushing the technology to see all that happening in a way that suggests that they they believe in it, it's right. And that once they've been doing it a few years, they get beyond this idea of what's the payback? Oh, you need to justify the investment every year if you want to keep your subscription up. It's just the way they're doing energy management. Yeah. And one quote that really stuck out from one energy manager uh, talking about their tool was they, they just said, well, you asked me to do a job. This is the tool that is going to help me do the job you've asked me to do. Like and you, you, know, you think about that. You about. think about how many energy managers, engineering directors have a certain responsibilities and really just yeah. don't have the tools to do their job the way that everyone wants it yeah. done. So I forget your exact point, but I guess it ties into the point you're making about you have to make something seem like it's just the right way to do things and it's the way. Through the, this campaign, I think we've managed to document so many leading companies that hopefully people will look at them and say, oh, you know, if they're doing it, it must be a good thing to do and they're getting results. And yeah, I hope, I hope people really take that on. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding, plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. Robert, I have questions. Why aren't our buildings more like cars? Shouldn't our buildings warn us if something is wrong and could impact our health and safety? Why can't our buildings tell us how efficiently they're working? Why, 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 why? <laughs> well, they fit, Adam, and they can, you know? Our philosophy is designed for people, good buildings follow. This whole indoor environmental quality thing is becoming a real important all around the world. Well, Tether have developed a mobile access property identity engine, and that enables landlords and property managers to monitor indoor environmental quality metrics plus energy consumption. It's all about making better decisions based on real-world information. Get smart, get tethered. For more information, go to tether.co.nz. And you can also hear from Tether CEO Brandon Van Blurk on our June 2020 episode of the Edifice Complex podcast. And now, back to the show. I think we are at a moment in time where there's some fundamental change going on. And the confluence of high-speed internet through 5G, I think buildings will become 5G nodes. The ability of, like, for instance, Belimo have a range of dampers and valve actuators now that are 5G enabled. You can put that thing in, doesn't need a router, and it can just start uploading to the internet. 
data acquisition machines, I call them, right? So the holy grail, though, for any automated control of a building is persistence of performance, right? You're trying to get that curve to be straight. That performance becomes predictable. Mm-hmm. The energy model becomes the outcome rather than an aspiration. That is really where it's going, I think. And I was interested to hear you talk about fault diagnostics and auto-optimization because auto-optimization and fault diagnostics, when you get to that level, it prompts the FM team into, right, there's a fault on Channel 4, go, you know, because leaving this for two days is X dollars per day in energy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when you get to that level of algorithm and automation, then, wow, we're in a different world at that point. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think that, you know, we're even looking one step beyond that is the idea of optimizing and reaching this optimized state. It will be dynamic, of course, but I think there's also a recognition that with things like, you know, grid instability, you know, grid events, I think it's, it's not just this ideal of optimized. It's also, can it be responsive? That's going to really make a difference too, I think. But, you know, in terms of the fault detection diagnostics, I think that we really have fantastic tools available right now and ways to use them. There are a few gaps in, in how to make it all fit together, but it's here for sure. Are you working at all with any of the uh, international energy agency annexes? One that comes to mind right now is the newest one about human occupant behavior in buildings. I'm not. It seems like there should be some communication between the groups because you can look at the building and the building systems and optimize it and achieve these kinds of savings. But at some point, there's somebody running that, that building. There's occupants that are opening windows, turning on lights, shutting, turning on computers, running the conveyor systems. You know, And it just seems to me that there is a communication path there that should exist between what your lab is doing and, what help, and the people studies that are being done. And these are done on a global basis. There's some huge... Mm-hmm. opportunities there i think it makes perfect sense i can't be sure that we're not working on those i mean i've heard reference to annexes but you know whether we're directly involved in that one i'm i'm not sure but yeah it's it's occupants is where it gets messy you know it's hard <laughs> yeah, <my God. laughs> right but if we can but you know you're talking about responsiveness i mean there is the mechanical and electrical systems responding to events then there is the human factor and how people are operating those buildings, which come into mm-hmm. play. And we were talking earlier about Robert Pettijon and, and total hydronic balance. And his big thing was that you can design the most perfect building, mechanical, electrical systems, architectural systems, but if it's not balanced, then you'll have overflows and underflows. And in both cases, the occupants will start to do shit, like open windows <laughs> in the middle of winter yeah. because they're overheating because the heat terminal units are you know delivering more heat than what was designed. And then, and now you've got large delta T's on this on that system, and then you have other ones that are underserved. And now you have a narrow delta T. It's a mess, right? Yeah. People matter. Yeah. In the work that I've done, we will interface more, perhaps, with the operations team, who are also human beings who can <laughs> make an impact for sure. My work is sort of interface with them more than occupants, but yeah. uh, I'm, I'm sure we've we've got other work going on, a bit more occupant focused for sure. And yeah, yeah you, you're absolutely right. I think that. Again, it's one of those things you have to be careful as a sort of a research institution is that we can't stick our head in the ha- sand and say, well, here we go. We've, we've given you the, the perfect research answers. Uh, you know, this should work because yeah. human beings, are, you know, really, really have a big impact there. And I, I think that it's one of those areas where 
for me personally, I'd wonder what's the best way to tackle it because things like operator training, just take that one example. Yeah. Operator training or training and certification for energy managers that has a strong analytics bent to it. You know, it's not our sweet spot. You know, as a national research lab, we're not pushed to do training and certification. You know, that's not really our role. But how can we be useful in making those things happen? You know, how can we make sure that need is surfaced and that if efforts are happening, can we be engaged in them? You know, I think, I think there's, I'm always looking out for ways to engage on that level. If, if yeah. Well, I think there's two buildings that we've used frequently, both in our presentations and here on the podcast, and that's uh, the NRL building yeah. in Boulder, and then also the Manitoba Hydro building. So both of those, you know, are owner designed, owner operated buildings. And we had a great presentation, I guess it was two ASHRAE meetings ago, it was an update on the NRL building. So now it's been running several years and they were talking about systems, all about systems, but also about people. And both buildings, you know, both clients talk about the culture of the culture of the people in the building. And because many of them came from other buildings and occupied the new building. And so they came with them, their own biases about how buildings should operate, you know, how they should function, what they should feel like. There's this whole pre-programming that they came and now they're in a brand new modern building with a lot of automation and the operating engineers were quite forthcoming about the time it takes you know two to three years sometimes in these large buildings to get a building in harmony if you want to put it into musical terms you know where everybody is singing the same tune a lot of people don't realize that that it can take two to three years to get a building properly tuned up not so much an Adam. Adam, I don't know if you did any too much on the custom residential stuff. We did lots of custom, custom residential yeah. stuff. Some of the homes that we were involved with took just as long to design build as you know a thirty story high rise, and it, and the systems were no different. They were advanced, complicated systems, and people that would commission these homes, you know, these are large projects, seem to think that okay, you move. It's like a car. You get inside, you turn the key ignition, and you drive it. That's not how it works. No. And oftentimes, the excess energy that's used was a result of, in the case of the bigger buildings, having to integrate the mechanical electrical systems, but also integrate the culture of the people that are operating and working in the space. And that applies to all buildings, residential, commercial, institutional, industrial, doesn't matter. It's the Mm -hmm. same story. Yeah. Totally agree. You know, and going back to my my sort of initial education, I got to go to many buildings that we did retro commissioning on, and you get to kind of be in the environment of the energy managers and the operators. And you know, once you get out of your office and out of your theoretical head, and you realize <laughs> what it's like to be those people. Yeah. And for us, we, we think of what's optimal, but we perhaps don't have to think about the risks of when things don't quite go right and who. Who gets it when things don't quite go right? And that, that's that's real. That's people's jobs and their livelihoods, and yeah. they need confidence in doing their job and, and managing what they do. And it's it, it takes it takes time. You know, you, you remind me, Robert, of of something else. Talking about you know several years to get a building up to speed. You know, for the analytics side of things, if you have several buildings, you have a, a campus or a portfolio. It might take you two or three years to feel like you're you're on top of the data alone, yeah. let alone what right. you're going to do with it. It's a tough one, and it's one that I don't feel too excited talking about it too much because I'd hate to discourage anyone from 
making that initial leap into to taking on analytics, you know, because you you really you see all the software and, and the way the advertisers, we can get you up and running so quickly and, um, you know, you can be saving tomorrow. And, you know, it's not quite that easy. And I believe you can get benefits quickly, but yeah. if you really want to be on top of it, it, it does take a few years, I think. There's a range, but I'd hate to think there are people out there that expected instant results and put systems out to, to pasture when they didn't. Yeah, that's, you know, you bring up a good point. And I think the owners, the building owners that you know are also occupying the building, so same with NRL, Natural Hydro, if they hang in there long enough, you know, the two, three-year period, after that, huge benefits. You yes. know, there's, there's a lot of pain, no doubt about it, a lot of frustration, a lot of agony, trying to get your head and hands on what you're actually looking at. Like, what are we, what is this actually telling us? But boy, oh boy, once you can do that, then, you know, you're off to the races for the life of the building, you know, and it hasn't been around long enough, but you know, if you could take maybe Adam, maybe you've got examples of buildings where you've been doing data acquisition for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, the consequences of being able to understand that and how fine tuned you can get a building with that long-term data. It's amazing, right? So what's interesting is we move into data-driven decision-making in buildings. The more data, the better, right? You cannot have too much data. And then you need a skill set that isn't common in buildings at the moment. You need a data analytics skill set. My personal opinion is the commissioning engineer of the future is going to be a Venn diagram of like a, a commissioning engineer with engineering background, a controls engineer specialist, and a data analytical person and someone who can then maybe even modify an algorithm. Do you know what I mean? Someone who can interpret that data. At the moment, my data interpretation, I have to have a trend log. So I get the controls guy set me up a load of trend logs. And because I understand buildings, I can interpret them. And then I ask him to make some adjustments, right? Or her. But in the future, that will probably be an automated machine learning driven thing as long as the data pool is big enough, right? Mm -hmm. And I liked your point about there's almost an element of mis-selling. So the construction industry, like the divide between like new construction and there's your building and see ya, you know? So you get your building and you've got all these expectations of it. It's like getting your new BMW, right? Oh, it's going to be awesome. And then you get it. And sometimes it doesn't quite work out. And there's this disconnect between new construction and then handover. And then, then the bedding in period. The construction issue at the moment, contractually and financially, it's just not set up for anything post-occupancy. Mm-hmm. I know that a lot of commissioning processes fantasize about a post-occupancy role. I've yet to meet a commissioning person that's been involved in construction and post-occupancy. That person needs a medal. That's a, that's a purple heart there. <laughs> <laughs> but that really has to happen or it will become a data-driven thing where the design data and the startup data will be then handed over to the FMT and then that data acquisition will start and then the tuning will automate. And I think Lawrence Berkeley have a research role to play there in helping with that transition to IoT. Andrew Yang thing, right? So if I'm Andrew Yang, I look at his business, am I saying, so for people outside the US, he was my favorite Democratic presidential candidate because he was young and wanted to change things, which is why he's not going to be the president. But he would look at this business and say, well, FM people, your jobs are going to be taken by algorithms eventually. Maybe, right? Maybe controls engineers, commission engineers, and FM people will over time become lower in numbers but higher in 
specialty and skill, maybe. Yeah, I think I try not to go there personally. Yeah. I think if I'm not saying it's wrong, I'm yeah. just saying that if you frame a, any conversation that way, you immediately put certain people at the defensive, and yes. it's, it's hard to work with that. I mean, it's just my personal thing. You know, like I say, I, I, it may be true, maybe it would just be a, a morphing of roles and so forth. But we've seen in the smart energy analytics campaign, we haven't seen any evidence that analytics has replaced people. It's it's yeah. more about really getting on top and becoming proactive. And for sure, I 100% agree with your point, Adam, around the skills that people need. You know, 10 years ago, I don't think commissioning providers had people who did Python coding. They had Excel yeah. whiz and they could import yeah. data that was emailed to them from a BAS. You know, and now you can plug straight into a data management platform run things mm-hmm. through Python. And, you know, just again, extending your point, you know, if it's really all about the data and everyone then gets the data, it comes down to what questions do you want to answer? Because yeah, you can't just say, oh, look, I've got yeah. all this data. I'll spend years looking through all these charts I can make. You have to have the right questions to be asking. I agree with you 100%. I'll steer away from layoffs. But, uh, well, I can make you know, that positive. <laughs> Just another point to, to think about evolution is yeah. last time I went to the BCA conference was, was two years ago. I think it was a couple of years ago. And I, I'd not been there for a few years. And I, I went in thinking, well, I'm, I'm really curious now that I know more and more about the analytics side, monitoring-based commissioning, what is the commissioning industry? You know, What are these people doing to integrate that? You know, how are they incorporating analytics? How could they? And I guess I had kind of idealized notions of firms just embracing it and using it as a a way to improve their commissioning processes to get more of a long-term engagement on projects. You know, as I had more conversations, it wasn't clear to me exactly how they do that. You know, does a firm that specializes in director of commissioning, do they get their own subscription to some kind of analytics and then go partner with them to go offer their services in conjunction to owners? Or do they let owners decide what analytics they want? And then the commission provider has to learn 10 different tools to be able to support those owners. It's it's not, it's, there isn't, didn't seem to me a really clear, easy business model there. I'm curious what your thoughts are on how commissioning industry as a whole can really embrace it. What has to be resolved in the near future is who owns the data. Mm. So I'll give you an example. I buy the Belimo valve actuator, which is a data acquisition machine. Who owns that data? Belimo, the owner, the FM people, right? Who owns the data is going to become important because the data is going to become valuable when it forms a large enough pool. And it could also, one of my theories is that data could be sliced and diced and sold and it can be sold to design teams to do what I call evidence-based design, you know, really know when the demands, the peaks and troughs are there. So you can control and select systems. To take the positive side of the possible job apocalypse, I don't think there will be a job apocalypse because technical innovation like this can be push or pull. At the moment, it's tend to be a tsunami pushed on you. But because the construction industry changes slowly, and even if it accelerated, it would still change slowly, there are enough baby boomers leaving the industry and not enough people coming in. I think there will be a natural attrition. And then the people coming in will be more 
IT, computer, literate for want of a better word, you know, be more comfortable with analytics as well as having some of the fundamentals. And there will be this natural evolution into the digital commissioning practitioner, mm-hmm. right, who will have that multi-skill set, I think. But there will be this messy period where there will be the overlap of, like, the people my age and the people my kids' age sort of, like, butting heads a little bit, you know. But I really believe we're in a f- profound, entering a profound era of change that is going to be forced on by things like environmental issues, climate issues, pandemic issues now, skill issues and availability, educational issues, availability, technology issues, IoT, all these things are sort of, this this massive Venn diagram is dumping on the table and it's going to like resolve over about a 10 or 15 year period, I think. And it will be okay to do it over 10 or 15 years because one of the benefits of slow change is that change can be worked out. That's Mm -hmm. my personal view, read of it. I have nothing to back that up. But if Lawrence Berkeley wants to tell me I'm good, I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I mean, I think that the rate of evolution in the last decade, I think, has been amazing in yes. terms of the analytics tools, particularly data storage, data communications, the, the capabilities of software as well as the user-friendliness of that software. It's just like night and day from, yes. from a decade ago, I think. And I think that so much is is set up to have greater innovation. I totally agree that data is huge, huge issue. Ownership of it, cybersecurity of it, you know, is is another huge aspect of that. And I'd be curious to have if education is adapting to that vision you have for 10, 10, 15 years time. You know, is data science a big part of mechanical engineering, you know, undergrad these days, you know, or... Or, or maybe it's more natural to think that data scientists who are studying right now might just fall into building commissioning without really knowing one end of a air handlet from another. I don't know. That, that's the danger. So you get what I call software jockeys. So on some building sites, they go on, there's a dude, normally a dude, in a panel with his laptop. He's got his headphones on and he's banging away and he thinks he's doing work. He has no idea. So he's writing code, he's uploading software routines. He has no idea what's on the end of that software routine, right? And that is the problem today. There's this gap between a software jockey and an engineer or a technician, and that gap has to be closed. Mm-hmm. So to your point on education, I just saw my daughter go through a four-year engineering course at NYU, and i got to tell you, that course sucked. If I had my time again, I would have sent her to the UK. I'm not saying that because I'm a Brit. I'm also a Canadian. But it's because half the people who were taught her couldn't speak English very well. And it was all about how clever they were and their book. You got to buy my book and it's $300. And they came out with pretty good math skills and some fundamentals, but really no useful marketable skills. That course should have been half fundamentals, half practitioner-led, where someone comes in and gives them a data science semester. Someone comes in and gives them an engineering management <laughs> Just some round skills. So when they're in front of an employer, they're a bit more rounded, right? Mm-hmm. They're not just someone who knows how to run out a calculus formula. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, well, that's not too, industry, not too encouraging. Ellie, that's a great question. And, and from an industry yeah. perspective, as soon as you asked that question, you know, I immediately thought of that quote, and I, I think it was attributed to Henry Ford, and they, uh, Henry said, had I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. <laughs> you know, and industry, if you if you get down in the weeds, 
and you ask a lot of the uh, directors of education curriculums within the industry associations, they're just regurgitating old material. Like, I mean, it's just, it's just there's no ability to do as Adam is doing and as, as what you've sort of observed, looking at what's needed in the future. It's let's just take what we have now and make it a little bit better. And so there's incredibly small incremental changes that are done. Mainly it's done based on changes that manufacturers have done to their particular widgets. So they're upgrading, maybe the control companies have upgraded some controls. And so, you know, they'll do a program on that. But as far as industry down on the trenches, not happening. There's another stat. It's something like over 60% of all the buildings on the continent are under 20,000 square feet. And most of those are not designed by anybody, like in terms of the mechanical electrical systems, mm. particularly mechanical systems are not designed by professionals. They're not people with engineering degrees. They're people who have come up through the trades or worked in the wholesalers. They were taught by the manufacturers or, or their previous employer, but none of them have the uh, scientific background to even consider what we're talking about here. You know, mm -hmm. that's most of the buildings yeah. in North America. Yeah, and I, I, I'll be honest, I don't don't know that we, uh, in my own personal work, have have done a great deal to serve that that market. I think it's it's often been recognised mm -hmm. as an underserved market, the small small commercial, many many buildings. I think that proportionally, you know, it's many more buildings, but the larger buildings each embody a larger energy footprint. So, yeah. so I think bang for the buck, hitting the large ones is. There's a lot of sense in that, but but there's a lot on the table, and and, and something that you know certainly is coming into clearer view across society. I think is just uh, you know uh, questions of equity and yes. you know energy equity and environmental equity, and I couldn't really do it barely do it lip service, but I think that we are we're at least starting to recognize that a little bit more of like well, what might it look like if you think about energy analytics in a more equitable way, you know, how could we reach more people, a broader swath of, of society? You know, like I say, I, I cannot make any claims to results, but I, yeah. I think it's, there's certainly a question that's coming up more and more in energy efficiency industry as a whole. There's a potential role for someone like Lawrence Berkeley, who've, who've got this reputation, right, to be an education provider, to plug that gap. I mean, the fundamentals are important and that's what universities are teaching, but they're not, teaching the practical practitioner side. Yeah, and there's maybe a role, unique credibility to do that. And, you know, someone like Lawrence Bode could collect people, Robert, Peter Rumsey, people like that, who could deliver that level of training. You know, this is really how you design and select a pumping hydronic system. Mm -hmm. That never happens in university, ever. That, that, them words will never leave a university lecturer's mouth, <laughs> right? So the person to find out how to unravel the big secret of how to design a, a hydronic system, select a pump, has to be lucky enough to be mentored by someone like Robert or Peter Rumsey, who will then, when they got the time and they're not stressed out, impart that knowledge to them. <laughs> yeah. And Adam's, yeah. Adam's, Adam's in that camp too, but we're doing Adam for sure. That's what you're going to leave this podcast with, a new business model for Lawrence Berkeley. Run with that, become vice president. Go. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do know that within the lab as a whole, there's a lot of outreach to the local community, for sure, educational ex establishments. 
I think that's maybe more generally on in terms of science and so forth, but it's a great suggestion. Like I say, we're asking the question and looking for ways to be more engaged with, with newer audiences too. And it could be a revenue generator as well, right? Because your, your reputation is sterling. You know, anything you do would have credibility. And God, there's got to be a revenue stream somewhere. You know, Adam, you know. I, am, I am shocked. I am shocked. Usually before those kinds of words come out of your mouth, you've got a contract to sign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, dis- I'm so disappointed in you today. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'm conscious of, uh, of how I've, I've really enjoyed this chat and we've been rambling on a while now. I'm conscious of your time. So we're, we're going to wrap up soon, but we normally finish with some sort of rapid fire questions. One of the reasons we started a podcast, we want to expose graduates and undergraduates and people young in their career to people who are making a difference, who are doing good work, right? And, you know, some virtual mentoring, if you like. So my rapid fire question to you is, what advice would you give to someone like you who were not sort of like started off, you know, I want to play for Chelsea and I can't play for Chelsea. What do I do now? How, don't, don't how talk would about you Chelsea. You, you picked switch? the wrong team there. I'm sorry, Adam. <laughs> I'm from West London. What can I say? Sorry. You can say Connell Hotspur, but you know. <laughs> you know we call Nam, Tottenham. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Say, say the question again there, Adam. Yeah, so sorry, how would you advise someone to do a sort of horizontal career switch? What's the steps that they need to take? How do they do that? I find that people in this industry are really happy to share what they know. And so I, I would, you know, I use LinkedIn fairly regularly to, to connect with people. I'm always happy to accept invitations to, to connect with people on LinkedIn. Most people I know are. And just, just talk to people, you know, reach out to yeah. people, try and schedule 15 to 30 minutes to have them share about what they do. Um, and see if at the end of that conversation you can get the names of two other people to connect with. And you know, very soon you'll build up a picture of, of lots of different people doing different things. And that doesn't necessarily get you a job, but I think you just need to start you know, connecting and, and speaking the language a little bit. That would be my, my number one suggestion. That's right. Don't be in a vacuum, right? Reach out. There's always someone who will speak to you about it. So I have a question for you, and it has to do with if you uh, were asked to speak to a group of high school career advisors, you know, these people that go back to their high schools and they're trying to provide career advice to 16, 17, 18-year-olds, what would your advice be to them? What would you say to these advisors? I would want to leave them feeling that there's a really exciting career in operating buildings. And, um, you know, just being part of a a team, providing a comfortable environment for potentially hundreds of people, problem solve every day, provide good service every day, the fun you can have with software and analytics. I'd love to really imbue them with that as sort of just to excite people to get them to a point of saying, huh, I never even thought about that because you never see them, right? It's like... You never see where where building operations really happen when you visit those buildings. And just to have people understand, yeah, that is actually a thing. It's a career and it's actually kind of exciting, even though normally you end up in a room without windows underground. That is absolutely a great observation. There are so many what I call hidden yeah. careers, right? Yeah, because everyone gets, oh, I'm an engineer, I'm an architect, right? But there are so many variations on that. And so many sub specialisms that you can go into. 
I mean, there's got to be something for everybody, right? Yeah, uh, totally. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, man. Thank you very much yeah, for yeah. your time. Really enjoyed yeah. speaking to you. Is there anywhere where our audience can connect with you and any Twitter handles or any? I don't, I don't twit, but yeah, find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, I'm easy to find there. And if you go to the, the Berkeley Lab website for the Building Technology and Urban Systems Division, you'll find details on me and the team I work with and all the, the great research that we're doing. And uh, it's, you know, all that, all that work is published for free. You can find a lot there. And if we're not experts at website design, I'll say that, <laughs> you know, we do a pretty good job, but if you're looking for something, you can't quite find it, just reach out to someone. We, we love to connect with people away from our ivory towers. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. Their team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue Rhythm for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, Go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one six one two four six zero eight three zero five. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode twenty-six of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> and I'm, well, it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep. They're an innovator in smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1-855-773-6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO, Glenn Spry. And now back to the show. We get great guests. You know, we do. We really do. And we're really fortunate. We're always looking for, as our site says, always looking for thought leaders. And I like Elliot, again, like I like a lot of the stories guy has a vision for what he wants to do when he grows up and realize when he graduates that his degree really it wasn't who he was and he yeah. sidestepped and now look where he's at you know yeah i liked him he was very thoughtful and that story about the shift you know the sunk cost fallacy is a really powerful thing if you've sunk four years into a degree it's hard to move sideways or away from that right if it's not right you got to do it i love that story of a successful horizontal move and still using the skills and the knowledge you've acquired. That is perfect yeah. success story. You do crash around as a young person in early in your career trying to find your niche, right? And, you know, I just got dumb lucky that I wound up in a niche that worked for me, but 
Yeah, I've yeah, seen other too. friends crash around until you find that place and then you're off to the races. So yeah. I love that story. It's just quite inspiring for me. I think if you search Dakota Wisdom, dead horse, it would come up. But it's something about, you know, when you, when you have a dead horse or a dead career, yeah. you know, you can hire a committee to evaluate the dead horse. You can hire an engineering team to redesign the horse's pro hooves. You can bring in a veterinarian to try to revive the dead horse. You know, you can, you can put out a government-funded uh, research study on how to revive dead horses and make them useful again. <laughs> the reality is it's a dead horse. Yeah. Like, get off of it, right? Yeah. And a lot of our guests, not to say that the horse was dead or that the yeah. crew was dead, it just wasn't riding the way that they, it didn't feel like the ride yeah. that they were looking for. And so they said, time for a change. And they did. So that's a good thing. Yeah, that was great. Because of his career path, be able to sit back. And he has a good macro view of all that's happening yeah. in property development and architecture. And the, of course, the associated energy, but also, and of course, the commissioning part of it. That comes from being in certain places along your career and to be able to develop, uh, create those pieces. We talked about this before, pieces yeah. of the puzzle and how they fit into the picture. And he's developed a really nice picture for himself. And I hope he continues to do that. The commissioning staff that we talked about towards the end, but I want to bring it up now. And, and you've said this before over and over again. And people need to listen to you and others that share the same views. And I listen to you, I think, you know, and, and uh, but that is, is that the data is important. Who owns the data, what you do yeah. with the data, being able to slice the data up into pieces, sell it, use some of it as a design incentives, design tools, powerful stuff. Yeah, it is. It, it, we really are in a, in a period of change. Lawrence Berkeley, though, are doing great work. I really hope they make a push into research on sort of IoT, monitoring-based commissioning, just the general automation of buildings and the tuning of the buildings, because they have the researchability and the gravitas to really move the needle on that and make it so obvious that adoption becomes a no-brainer, because yeah. that's their power, right? That power is saying, we've looked at it, this makes perfect sense, this is why it makes perfect sense. And then the unsaid question is, why aren't you doing it? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, if you, and you think about like what you just said, and, yeah. if, and I'm going to sort of tie it back to some of our previous guests that we've had on, you know, that have talked about buildings as sources of energy plants, energy yeah. conversion plants, but also that, and then distributing that energy managing the flow of that energy, which includes yeah. data, taking that data and then putting it back into the system. So it's kind of, it's a recycled uh, process, feedback loop in many ways, right? It's yeah. a feedback loop. And so when we bring in guys like Elliot and we consider what he has to say along with the Paul Gezies of the world and yeah. uh, other guests that we've had on that have talked about buildings, sources of data, you mentioned you know, Belimo, that's a data acquisition device. Yeah. You know, all these devices are, building control systems are, boiler controls, chiller controls, all of them acquiring data. What do we do with it? How can we use it? And, you know, but then there's also, okay, then let's look at the characters of buildings and the data we get from those buildings. And, eventually, yeah. and you, again, you alluded to it, and so did Elliot, and that is, is that as the database grows along its continuum and it gets deeper and deeper, we can look at it as a character of the characterization of that building. Yeah. 
And we could say, well, if you're going to design a hospital and this is the architecture that you use and these are the interior systems and the mechanics you're considering, well, based on the database, here are the characterizations and the characters of the building and here's what you can expect. Data is, it really is the 8,000 pound gorilla room. I, just to wrap up on a conversation I had yesterday. So I was speaking to someone yesterday in the Middle East and we talked about, yeah, where's the market going? Because, you know, there's enough residential buildings and hotels and airports in the Middle East. But when you look at it even worldwide, data warehousing, I don't see any pullback in the growth of that as a sector for the next 10 years. Mm. I mean, just a sheer amount. Let's just say buildings do become 5G data nodes, right? That data has to be warehoused somewhere. You know, that, how many data centers and data warehouse buildings could be built in the next 10 years? It's, it's going to be the hot sector, I think, for 10 years. You know, if I was starting an engineering design firm or a commission firm now, that would be exactly where my focus would be. I would become the specialist, the best at doing that. Not grow that ops. is where the market is. Not grow ups? You'd go into data, not grow ups? The other <laughs> one, I think, won't be as big, but it's not going away. Vertical farming term. Vertical yeah, farming, right? Yeah. Yeah, urban farming, vertical farming, that is another growth area. But I think that will wind up being an existing building adaption project. So a lot of the condos and office spaces that might become obsolete, they could quite cheaply, relatively cheaply, be converted into vertical farms, right? Yeah. You you keep the structure. Yeah. It's a strip out and uh, industrial refit. So it's not. Expensive. They got Dan Knoll on, uh, and yeah. of course, his episodes will, will be coming up soon too. But yeah, Dan Knoll in the conversation, he would be saying, okay, well, the data centers are, are a source of heat energy. Yeah. And that heat energy can be converted to, you know, heating up water for agricultural purposes or for space heating, whatever. So maybe these vertical farming systems also integrated or um, multi-purpose buildings, right? Where you've got... Well, think of this, right? If, you're, if you've got downtown towers obsolete and it's next to several other downtown towers that are used, you could do an energy transfer. Take the yeah. heat from them buildings, heat rejection them buildings, use yeah. it to preheat the, what we're calling it, a greenhouse tower. I don't know what we're going to call it, but perfect, right? Yeah. Well, we had one of the interior design firms, we were at a course... And they were talking about converting shopping malls into senior care facilities, yep, which is perfect, right? You've got the walk around. People like to get out and walk. And they, yeah. each of the stores can be broken up into, into single or multiple units, right? Yeah. Well, you take one of the great big signature bases that were once occupied by a big brand name, right? And that becomes a data center. Yeah. Cooling requirement or the heat rejection from that data center could easily be provided for conditioning the senior care facilities you know there's yeah. there's some synergies there that are available hey uh, elliot said something really cool and i you know i'm gonna steal this i'll try to remember to credit you elliot if you listen to this after the show you know get out of your theoretical head yes. <laughs> i love that yes right? damn right just say and that I, to every university professor ever <laughs> absolutely absolutely you know you both you and i have spent a lot of time in buildings and mechanical yeah. rooms and having to look at and concern ourselves with the architecture, interior systems, mechanical, electrical. Theory, theory is good. You know, academia is good. Yeah. But if you want to develop uh, confidence, 
in your theories, then you need to have it tested and you need to get out there and feel, no pun intended, the heat that is put on you by the building managers, the building yeah. owners, the occupants, because they will put you under the gun and under the lights, the bright lights, and go, what the F is going on here, buddy? You know? Yeah, one of my mentors used to say to me, Adam, you have to own and confront your horrible decisions. <laughs> I love it. It's the only way you don't make that same mistake again. Yeah, yeah. You have to own and confront your terrible decisions. Absolutely. Because yeah. if you don't, then you're just copy and pasting that decision into the next job. That was a fucking great bit of advice. Then he introduced me to the 200-pound pipe fit who told me I was useless. <laughs> <laughs> I know a couple of young men that uh, I mentor to that I'm going to give that advice to. Because yeah. <laughs> there's no the, – the real crime is not recognizing it as a bad decision and repeating it. That is the only crime in life. You get a mistake, right? And you, but if you can recognize it and say, you know, okay, I'm not doing that again, that is the best possible outcome of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> but then uh, repeating probably. it and repeating it, that's no good. That is no good to anybody. Yeah. I, we've, I think we've had this discussion before, but I remember over my career that there's been, I don't know, six or seven maybe defining moments where I was pulled aside by an old smart guy. I was a young, dumb guy, arrogant though. And thought I knew everything, and I was quickly had a tune-up. <laughs> yeah. Most of them, I was pulled aside. You know, yeah. it wasn't done, the raking over the coals was not done in a public forum. It was being get your ass in here. I got, we need to have a chit chat about your attitude. <laughs> you know, they were uncomfortable moments. Yeah, but I'll never forget any one of them. They're probably the most valuable things that yeah. ever happened to me. Yeah. Having that. You know, check. Humility, absolute humility. And kudos to the individuals that have played that role. You know, I yeah. never, ever held them in disregard. I always held them with high respect. The fact that they cared enough to pull me aside and say, quit being an idiot. <laughs> I'm saving you from yourself. You just don't want it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You can pay me back later. <laughs> Oh dear. Okay, man. That was a good one. I enjoyed that. All right. Yeah. So, see you in the next one. Okay, Adam. Always okay. good, man. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.